Please take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of James. Book of James, chapter 5. Some of you are thinking, wait a minute. We aren't done with Job. Why are we going to James? We are going there because one of the most important principles for interpreting the Old Testament is to turn to the most important commentary written on the Old Testament. That's not the Expositor's Bible commentary. That's not MacArthur's commentary. It's the New Testament, in case you didn't know. Those are good commentaries. Don't get me wrong. But the New Testament is superior to those. We, we want our thoughts on Old Testament revelation to be shaped by New Testament revelation. Before I hear what a Bible teacher or preacher or scholar says about an Old Testament passage, I want to first hear what God has to say about it, because what He says about it is far more important than what Scholar X may say about it, despite how awesome Scholar X may be. So, as you are finding your way now to James chapter 5, why don't you stand with me in honor of the reading of the words of our God. And we're going to start in verse 10. The Holy Spirit says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help this morning. We really need your help to really get the book of Job, to get the point. And Father, all wisdom comes from you, as we talked about in our Sunday school classes this morning. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate our understanding as we feast on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, there are a, um, a, a couple of challenging things about that passage in James that we just read. Uh, for one thing, James is talking about steadfastness, which means uh, it has to do with patience. James says we consider blessed or happy those who remain steadfast. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't necessarily associate waiting with happiness, do you normally put those two things together? Waiting with blessing? Who likes to wait? The other difficult thing about this passage is that James talks about the Lord's compassion and mercy. Anyone in here associate the book of Job with God's compassion and mercy? Are you serious, James? Let's review this, shall we? In chapter 1, Satan comes and tells God that the only reason Job loves and serves God is because God is Job's sugar daddy. God has showered Job with riches and comfort and security and success. And, and, and so who wouldn't want to follow God with that kind of salary package? You take those things away from Job, God, and I promise you jo that Job will curse you to your face. He will abandon you, and he will go his own way. And God, this compassionate and merciful God, says, Okay, Satan, you can attack Job 
Just don't kill him. And all hell breaks loose in Job's life at the hands of Satan. Riches, gone. Possessions, gone. Respect, gone. Children, gone. Health, gone. And yet James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking of Job's situation to encourage us, says that the Lord was compassionate and merciful. How do we think about Job's experience in light of what James is telling us what we need to think about Job's experience? Well, let's consider first the, the steadfast patience of Job as James talks about this. Uh, sometimes when we think of patience, we think of somebody just kind of uh, passively sitting around calm and peaceful and doing nothing. They just kind of are le- just letting life just wash over them. I'm just, I'm just being patient. That's, that's kind of what we think about when we think of, of patience. But as we've gone through the book of Job, we haven't seen that from Job. Maybe we saw that in chapters 1 and chapters 2, but for the bulk of the book, Job has been anything but calm and peaceful. I think that the kind of patience that James is talking about in particular is best described by that word steadfastness. James talks about the steadfastness of Job. That kind of waiting, that kind of patience is more of an active quality as opposed to something that's passive. It's a, it's a pressing on. It has to do with moving forward and persevering and not giving up. It's not a passive sitting back and just letting things wash over him. There's a persistent quality of steadfastness, and, and that we most definitely see in the sufferings of Job, don't we? And as Job's suffering continues... Job's confusion grows and he gets angry and he begins to say some very wrong and horrible things about God as he demands answers from God for his suffering. And we've focused quite a bit on how Job has stumbled along the way, but in the midst of it all, there have been these persistently stubborn bright spots of tenacious and perseverant hope. We've talked about this in weeks past. Job, despite his struggles with God, is not struggling as a man who is walking away from God. That's what Satan wants, by the way, for Job to get so angry and frustrated that Job would abandon God because he thinks God has abandoned him. And you would think that that's a good strategy, that that would work. Many of us, in our deep pain and anguish, become tempted to chuck it all and forget God. God's done with me. So that means that God's not doing what I think he should do, and so that means that I'm done with God. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that in life from people. God's done with me, so it seems I'm finished with him. But that's not what Job does. Satan's strategy doesn't work. It actually backfires. As Satan whispers into Job's ear, God has abandoned you. God is unjust. God doesn't care. It doesn't drive Job away from God. It actually stirs up within Job a deeper and more intense longing for God. As you continue reading through Job, it becomes increasingly clear what Job's greatest sorrow and deepest pain is. And to the first-time reader, it can be very shocking. The thing that pains him the most is not that he has lost health, wealth, Children, Job's deepest torment comes from the the belief that he's lost God, that he's not in right relationship with him. 
despite everything he is suffering and everything he has lost, Job will not give up on the one thing he desperately wants above all else. He longs to meet with God and be in right relationship with him. And it's, it's as if the deeper he feels the pain, the more he longs for this. It's a couple of examples from Scripture. You can turn to Job 14. Some of this is, is, is a little bit of, of review, but it's been a while uh, since we've thought about this. And if you want more on, on, the, on the bright spots in Job and, 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 the, and the positive things that are going on in, in him, you can go online and, and listen to uh, the, the message on Job 19. We really dig into that. But look at what he says in Job chapter 14, uh, starting in verse 13. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that's the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath be past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call, and I would answer you, and you would long for the work of your hands." In other words, you will long for me. You will want me, God. Job knows that above all else, what he was made for was a relationship with the living God. And he is desperately terrified that he doesn't have that relationship anymore. Yes, it hurts to lose his wealth and his health and those ten precious children. But where the knife strikes deepest is the perceived loss of God. And that's something he can't live without. Despite the anger and the doubts of Job and all the dark moments of his speeches, there continues to be this steadfast, persistent hope in him that won't go away. This steadfast and stubborn hope in God. It comes out in Job chapter 13, verse 15, where he says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. What an incredible statement. Though I don't understand what's going on, Though none of this makes sense to me, though this hurts really bad, who else do I have? There is nobody else. Even if you drag me into the grave, God, even if you kill me through all this, I will hope in you. I will trust in you. That's what steadfast, godly patience looks like, friends. A stubborn, tenacious clinging to God. Everything else is crumbling around Job. The earth itself is giving way, and like a man on a cliff who underneath his feet is a yawning chasm, Job holds on to the rock, white knuckles, refusing to let go. In Job 19, he speaks words that are among his most powerful statements of faith in the whole book when he cries out, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he expresses this longing to to see and to be in relationship with God, and in fact cries out in Job 19, Oh, how my heart faints within me. Job, through his pain, is realizing what the psalmist says in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There is this passionate longing for Job to know God, to really know Him in relationship. That is the steadfastness of Job. May God grant us that steadfastness in our own trials. 
But what about this other thing that James talks about in chapter 5, the compassion and mercy of God? Where do we see this in Job's trials? While Job shines in some ways, makes some incredible statements of faith, demonstrates continuous persevering, while he shines in some ways, he doesn't do it perfectly. Job is a mixed bag, which is what makes the book of Job so real, so relevant, and so helpful. Job is not some perfect, polished, porcelain saint. He's like you. There's a mixture of faith and flaws. And while we commend the faith, we want to be honest about the flaws. And in Job's trial, some of his flaws are exposed. And as Job struggles, as he demands answers from God, and as God is apparently silent, he begins to feel that God has wronged him, that God has become an enemy, that God's not just, and in his attempt to prove his own righteousness, Job begins to overstate the case and begins to make himself more righteous than he really is at the expense of God's righteousness. And God in chapter 38, and we talked about this last last week's message, he appears finally And instead of answering Job's questions directly, God gives Job a barrage of questions about the order and structure and composition of the universe and nature and reality itself, dazzling and dizzying questions that makes Job's head spin. And then in chapter 41, God turns from the natural world to the supernatural world, in particular the world of supernatural evil as we looked at this strange monster known as Leviathan, a monster that is terrible, seemingly all-powerful, a beast that Job has no hope of controlling or taming, a, a beast who I believe and made the case for last week is, is, is representative of Satan, who is the very one who's been attacking Job from the beginning. And this horrible, terrifying beast that no man can control is actually under the sovereign control of one who is even more powerful and more fearsome than the monster, and that's God himself. And the point of all these speeches from the Lord is to help Job to see that Job's world is not spinning out of control, that God really is all-powerful. And it's not just that God is all-powerful, but that God is all-wise. And when Job is giving all these questions, is given all these questions by God, and Job can't answer these questions... Job gets the point that Job's wisdom and understanding is just a drop in an ocean of God's wisdom and understanding. And so God in his all-powerful sovereignty can allow and prevent suffering, but also God in his infinite wisdom knows when to prevent it and when to allow it, and God's not helpless and God's not stupid. But compared to God, Job is, and so are we. And to charge God with doing wrong or being unjust is just to betray our own ignorance. We haven't a clue about the details of God's running of the universe, and Job gets that. And look at Job's response in chapter 42, starting at verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Uh, That's that's him, by the way. (laughs) That's the answer to that question. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, things above my pay grade, which I did not know. And look at verse 6. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. 
Job wasn't suffering because he had sinned. I've tried to make that point just about every week. I hope you've gotten that. Job wasn't suffering because he had sinned, but it becomes clear that Job is sinning because he is suffering. And when Job repents, he is repenting of this prideful self-righteousness that has come out during his trial and has led him to boldly and even arrogantly assert his own righteousness. And he realizes he has spoken presumptuously of things that he does not understand, and he has overreached himself. There was an ugliness in his heart that not even Job knew about, that Job would never have known about if not for this trial. And now in the presence of the only one who is perfectly righteous and holy, Job bows down in worship of the living God. He sees himself for what he really is because he sees God for who God really is. The better picture and the clearer picture that you have about God gives you a clearer picture of yourself. Reminds me of of Peter when after witnessing one of the the miracles of of Jesus, Peter just says, I'm a sinful man. He falls on his knees. He, He realizes who he is when he recognizes who God is. And Job, similar to Peter, says, I despise myself. Now, our modern sensibilities react strongly against that kind of language because we're supposed to have self-esteem, feel good about ourselves. There are, there are churches all over the country this morning telling you how awesome you are. And you walk away feeling really good about yourself. And so our modern sensibilities are like, I, I despise myself? Well, we can't talk like that. Listen, listen. we understand And I understand, I hope you understand, that for us to go around thinking that we are worms in relation to our fellow human beings is very destructive. That kind of inferiority complex is not healthy or helpful. But in the presence of the living God, to bow down low and to grasp how great and wonderful God is and how small I am, that's a healthy thing because it's true. And it's the mark of the love of God. It's the mark of his compassion and his mercy. Through that, he brings Job low. For this is where the creature ought to be, low. And that's compassion and mercy from God. To put us in our place so that he can be in his proper place, in our mind and in our hearts. Job was doing the exact opposite of that in the, in the trial, uh, during the trial. Uh, as a matter of fact, God says to Job in chapter 40, verse 8, Will you even put me in the wrong, Job? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? And so now God corrects Job's perspective. God is put in his place. Job is put in his place, and now Job can see correctly, and that pride in Job's heart has been rooted out. But I don't think that the rooting out of pride is the main point of all this. The danger of pride and the importance of humility is not the main point, but it's going to help us to get to the main point. Job can't get the main point until he's humbled. But it's not about humility just for the sake of humility. It's humility for the sake of taking us somewhere very specific. So where is he taking us? Where's God taking us? Last week, when we looked at chapters 38 through 41, 
And God gives Job this barrage of of questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? As you considered the answers of God to Job, did God's response offend you? Be honest about that. After losing his wealth, after his ten children are destroyed... After his health is ruined and his body is breaking out and festering running sores. He's sitting on the ash heap, scraping his wounds. After going through what may well have been months of suffering. There's, some, there's a hint earlier in the book of Job that this may have gone on for months. Months of suffering. Suffering some of the worst calamities that anyone could ever experience. And after asking for answers, God finally shows up and says stuff to Job like, where were you when I laid down the foundations of the earth? He starts asking Job questions about astronomy, talking about mountain goats, ostriches. Doesn't that rub you the wrong way? Does that leave you cold? What's up with that, God? I've gone through all of this, and you show up, and you talk about oxen. And you essentially say, I'm God, you're not, I know how to run the universe, you don't. Really? Is that all you got for me? I've thought about this for many weeks, wondering how how many people might be offended by the apparent aloofness and apparent insensitivity and coldness of God's answer. I wonder if you're one of them. So how do we handle God's response to Job? Let me help us with that by asking you another question. I think probably the better and more helpful question is not, why might you be offended by God's response? I think the better question is, why isn't Job offended? That's so important. Some of you aren't seeing that right now. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit's going to help you to see how huge this is and, and where we're going in the next few minutes. Because I, I, can't, I can't help you, but the Holy Spirit can. This is so important. You and I may initially take offense at God's response to Job, but it is so massively significant to realize that Job doesn't take offense. And he's the one that's going through this. Not us. More than that, it's not only that Job is not offended, but now, suddenly, Job is satisfied. Isn't that weird? We get and we understand Job's earlier responses, don't we? We can relate to the anger and the doubts and the confusion and the questions and the frustration of Job. We can relate to that dark pit of despair that he was in. That makes sense. That's, that, that's understandable. That's not unusual. What is unusual is chapters 42, chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. How can a man who has suffered like Job, who initially had all these questions like Job, who was angry like Job, suddenly do a 180 in chapter 42? How? The answer actually is in Job's response. Look at it with me again carefully. 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Now we're coming up on verse 5, and this is the key to everything, folks. This is the point of it all. And I pray that God will help me to help you feel the weight and the significance of verse 5. After the hell that Job has gone through, he says, verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. This is amazing. Job says, I heard of you. I had some sort of knowledge of you, some sort of relationship with you, but now, now, I really know you. I know you better. I know you more than ever. I see you more clearly than I ever have. I I know you in in a deeper and clearer and truer way, and I am satisfied, and I will ask no more questions. Is this insane or what? Is this crazy? Listen, folks, in verse 5, as Job is making this declaration, please know that Job is still sitting on the ash heap with pus running from his sores. His three friends still don't respect Job and are slandering him. Job's wealth is still gone. You following this? We, we, we We know all these things get restored at the end of the chapter, but this comes before that. That's critical to note. He's still suffering all of these losses, and on top of it all, his ten children are still dead. And Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job is in wonder and is in awe and is satisfied. Job teaches us lots of lessons about suffering, and I'm sure we didn't adequately cover all of them in this sermon series. You're going to have to go back on your own, do the work at home through this and read the book again. But out of all the lessons this book teaches us, let's not miss this one. The ultimate answer to Job's suffering was not immediate relief. When you and I are in deep suffering, we want relief, don't we? That's what I want. I want it now. And there's nothing wrong with wanting that. There's nothing wrong with praying for that. But relief is not what we need most, and almost no one understands that. Immediate relief is not what we need the most. As a matter of fact, sometimes immediate relief may undercut God's plan to graciously humble us and teach us to depend on Him. What does the the psalmist say? I quoted this a few weeks ago. Uh, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now... I keep your word. How about answers? Is that what we need the most? Many of us demand answers and we cannot rest and have peace until our questions about life and suffering are answered to our satisfaction. And Job was on a quest for answers. And there's nothing wrong with asking questions as long as it's done in a spirit of humility. But what we do learn from the book of Job is that answers are not always forthcoming. In fact, many answers are not forthcoming. God will not break everything down to Job. You know, you get to the end of the book of Job, and there's much that Job 
still does not know that God has not revealed to him. We, there's, not a, there's, not, there's not chapter you know, 43 that says, and God appeared to Job and said, well, let me explain to you everything that happened. See, along, you know, a while back, I was in heaven, and Satan was there, and he said this, and I said this, and then I decided to do that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't give him all the answers. Ultimately, what we discover in Job's response to God is that what we need the most in our deepest pain is not immediate relief, and it's not about knowing all the answers. Instead, it's all about knowing God. That's what we need the most. You're like, that's such a Sunday school answer, but do you really get it? Do I really get it? God help us. God help us if we blow that off. One of God's designs in our pain is to drive us deeper into God, to know Him more deeply, to fellowship with Him more closely, to enjoy Him even more, to be satisfied by Him to a deeper degree. You see, if you and I are offended by God's answer to Job, then it actually really says more about us than it does about God. And if we are in awe of Job's response to God, it really says more about God than it does about Job. And this brings us back full circle to the beginning of the book of Job, where I think one of the most important questions in the whole Bible was asked. A question so weighty and so important that I think your life hinges on this question. And ironically, the question was asked by Satan. Do you remember the question that Satan asked in Job chapter 1, verse 9? This question is so huge. Here it is. Does Job fear God? For nothing? That question has personal and cosmic ramifications. Does Job, does anyone fear and worship and serve and love God for nothing? Worship and love God for God's own sake? Where all you get is God and nothing else? Or to put the the question another way, Does Job fear you, God, for your sake alone, or does Job love you, God, because you bless him and you give him stuff? You're paying him off. And behind Satan's question is a deeper and more important and more insidious question, and that question is, is God in and of himself worthy of Job's worship? Is God in and of himself worth more than Job's health, wealth, possessions, and kids? And is God in and of himself sufficient to satisfy Job? You take away all these other blessings and trappings, God, and Job's going to curse you and abandon you, which means, God, that you aren't good enough. That's the accusing clawed finger that Satan is pointing at God about. You're a sham, God. And so let's demonstrate this to the world, God, that all this talk of being of God being all we need is just a slogan because nobody really believes it. And let's take the godliest, most devout man on the planet and take all this other stuff away and let's see what happens now, God. You need to know the answer to Satan's question. The world needs to know the answer to that question. Because if Satan is right about the worth of God, you and I are wasting our time and our lives. Go home. 
if Satan is right about the worth of God, that he's not worth more than anything else, then Christian martyrs around the world who are having their heads sawed off by ISIS because they refuse to renounce Christ are wasting their lives, wasting their blood, and you are a fool for following him. And if Christ is worth it, but we aren't sure, then who's going to follow him? Satan doesn't need to devalue God in reality. He can't do that anyway. All he has to do is make us doubt the worth of God, and we can just be unsure about it all the way to hell. There is more on the line here than Job ever realized. The universe was watching. Angels and demons and millions of people around the world who have read this story have sat on the edge of their seats to discover the answer to Satan's question. Is God worth it? Is he really the superior treasure that he says he is? Is he really worth more than health, wealth, prosperity, family, comfort, success, human respect, houses, children? And Job's response in chapter 42 answers with a resounding yes. Job has seen God. Job knows God to a deeper degree. Prideful arrogance has been rooted out of Job so he can better know him and see him. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And it is worth everything that he has gone through to get to this point. You're thinking, well, Job saw a whirlwind. I don't have that. You've got something better than a whirlwind. You have Jesus Christ risen from the dead. You have an empty tomb, and you have his word breathed out to you, the way that you get to know and see God with the help of the Holy Spirit by this that he has revealed to you. You can know God better, and you can see him more clearly as well. What is the greatest gift that God could give to you to show his love for you? Is it health? Is it wealth? Creflo Dollar thinks so. Joel Osteen talks like that. What's the greatest gift that God could give you to show you his love for you? Is it comfort and security? God owns everything. What in his storehouse of treasure is the most valuable and precious thing of all? My brothers, my sisters, the greatest thing that God could give you to show he loves you the treasure that exceeds all other treasures, is himself. Do you believe that? Do you believe and do I believe that the value of God is so infinitely greater than anything that if knowing him and experiencing him and enjoying him more later means suffering now, is it worth it? Do we really believe it? The supremacy of God over all other treasures is what caused the Apostle Paul, another great sufferer, to declare in Philippians chapter 3, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Paul knows where true value is. I see this over here. I see God over here. Forget that. I want this. How many of us believe that Christ is that good? I believe 
help my unbelief. Job, through his trials, has come to a point where he sees and experiences and enjoys this treasure to a much greater degree than ever before, where sitting on the ash heap in pain, in great loss and sorrow, is satisfied. Satisfied not in answers or in relief, because he doesn't have any of those right now, but satisfied in God. The thing that he feared the most, being out of relationship with God, that fear has now been eliminated. He knows now that he has God, and that can sustain him in his suffering. Job understands something of the worth of God that many of us have only begun to fathom. I know I need help here. God, increase my vision of your worth and of your value. And Job cries out with millions of other faithful sufferers. Sufferers like Johnny Erickson Tata, who has for decades been an unhealed paraplegic stuck in a wheelchair. Sufferers like Elizabeth Elliot, who, by the way, recently went to glory. Praise God for that. Sufferers like Elizabeth Elliot, whose, whose first husband, Jim, was speared to death on the mission field by the very people they were trying to reach with the gospel. Sufferers like Horatio Spafford, who lost all of his wealth in the Chicago fire in 1871, and two years later lost all four of his precious girls when the vessel they were traveling in sunk in the Atlantic Ocean. And Spafford, in the wake of that horrible accident, wrote a song that has strengthened and sustained millions of followers where he writes, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Spafford realized what so many sufferers have realized, that if you lose everything but have Christ, you have everything you need and more. It does not mean that the things Job lost were not valuable, but what it means is that Job recognized the value of knowing God better, exceeded those things because the value of God is priceless. And in this way, Job passed the test and proved Satan wrong and extolled the worth and value of God in the viewing of all the angels and demons and and, and to you and to me and everyone else who has read this book who needed to know the answer to the devil's question. We're all amazed by Job's response in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, but I think his response in chapter 42 is even more amazing. And now Job is at this point where God is worth everything to him. That, my friends, is the compassion and mercy of God. God hasn't given Job relief. He's given him something even better, himself. And now Job, who is still suffering, who is still in the storm, now has peace because he has God. He doesn't have all the answers, but he doesn't need them now. And he now recognizes that he can entrust his pain to an all-good, all-powerful, all-wise God who he knows loves him and is on his side. Job didn't need to be in control. Instead, Job needed to know that the God he was in fellowship with was in control. And that's what you and I need most in our pain. Jesus said that in this world you will have tribulation. Believers are promised suffering. In this world you will have trouble. But then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, Take heart. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And for God to be in loving and deepening fellowship with you was worth everything to him. Any price we pay, any sacrifice we make on the journey of knowing God would be futile if God did not make a greater payment and a greater sacrifice first. 
your sin and my sin has separated us from relationship with God. And yet God loved you and wanted to be in relationship with you so much that he paid the ultimate price to make it happen. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is both God and man, came to earth and suffered more than you, more than me, more than Job. Why? To pay for our sins that separate us from God. Why? So that all who believe in Christ could be brought into fellowship with God and so that we could have an experience and enjoy the most valuable treasure in the universe, God himself. And if we believe and are brought into that fellowship with God, then we, like Job, may experience pain and affliction. And we, like Job, will not have all the answers. But we, like Job, have the assurance of God's presence and love. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the greatest evidence that God is for you and not against you. And it is because of the cross that God the Father can say to you, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Because of what Christ has done, we can rejoice when the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There is something about your affliction and my affliction that God is working in to produce good in us. There's something about our suffering that is working on our behalf that leads to great glory later on. That means that every single moment of our pain and suffering is not without purpose. It is all meaningful and under the control of a good and sovereign God. We don't need to know how. We don't need to understand all the details. What we do need is to know God and to trust his wisdom in the middle of the whirlwind of affliction. Only in knowing God can we, through our suffering, experience lasting satisfaction. Only in deepening fellowship with him can we, in the midst of pain, know true and lasting peace. Now, I want to close us with a, with a video clip. And uh, it really was inspired by that wonderful scripture, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. So I'd like you to just watch this video, listen to the words, and, and meditate on these great truths that we have been learning and may you be blessed through this song Your name, though. 
my heart the flesh may fade the earth will all give away but with my eyes with my eyes I'll see the Lord lifted high on that day behold the Lamb that was slain and I'll know that every tear was worth it all And though you sting me Yet I will praise you Though you take from me I will bless your name Though you rule with me Still I will Sing a song to the one who's all I need. Though the night I'm crying out, let this cup pass from me now. You're still more than I. Not only is all your affliction momentary, not only is all your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. It's not meaningless. Of course you can't see what it's doing. Don't look to what is seen. When your mom dies... When your kid dies, when you've got cancer at 40, when a car careens into the sidewalk and takes her out, don't, don't say, it's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, therefore, do not lose heart, but take these truths and day by day, Focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach His Word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are new and cared for.
Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us to preach these truths into our minds. You are for your people, and you are not against us. Father, I pray that you would help cultivate a heart in me that sees you as so valuable and so worthy and so wonderful that if it means going through the fire to enjoy and experience and glorify you more can I have a heart that would say yes? Because I know that you're worth more than anything else. Cultivate within our church that kind of spirit and attitude. And thank you for your patience with us. We are slow to learn. We love you, Lord. Help us to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.